Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at a familiar story that many preach for Christmas. Almost every year when I preach at Christmas time, I tell you this, I, I have a tradition where I, I love to watch Christmas movies. And one of my favorites is A Christmas Carol. And, and I love the old ones, I love the new ones, I especially love the one with George C. Scott. I think that was one of the best. Um, and many may wonder why I love this movie uh, when it depicts salvation as a works righteousness system. Well, I look at this production in a different way through the eyes of redemption. And, and as you all know, in the first part of the movie, Ebenezer Scrooge is a bitter old man. He's bitter because of the misfortunes of his past. He chose to follow after money instead of marrying his first love. Um, his anger and bitterness show in the way he treats children, the poor, his family, and especially his employee, Bob Cratchit. He especially hates Christmas because it costs him so much money. You know, presents and giving to the poor and Bob Cratchit wanting time off. Bah humbug to it all, right? He is the perfect picture of a man who is dead in his trespasses and sins, who hates God and everything to do with God, especially the Christmas season, when we celebrate the greatest gift ever given, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in our culture today. People hating Christmas. They don't even want to hear Merry Christmas, do they? Well, on Christmas Day, Scrooge wakes up a changed man. It's as if he was born again. He wakes up with shouts of excitement. He, sa he says, is it still Christmas? Is it still Christmas? He's been given a second chance at life, and he's filled with joy. And every one of us who are Christians have been given a second chance at life. A new ability to please God, which we have never had before. And at that point, Scrooge opens up the window, and he yells at the little boy on the street to go buy the biggest goose in town to give to the Cratchits, right? And then he gives Bob Cratchit a raise and money for his son, Tim, to help him with his sickness. The townspeople and his family probably think Scrooge has lost his mind. But he hasn't lost his mind. I think, as I look at it, his heart's been changed. We, as Christians, celebrate Christmas and the greatest gift ever given. That Christ came to this earth as a babe to save us, his people, 
from our sins. You know, he lived a perfect life keeping every aspect of God's law because he knew that we couldn't do it. He died on the cross to pay for our sins because he knew that we couldn't do it. He regenerated our hearts, making us born again, calling us to himself because he knew that we wouldn't do it. If you're a Christian, then you've been given the greatest gift ever given. How will you respond to that gift? And that's the question today. Look at Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by, by another way. This story focuses on the King of Kings, of course, and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also in this story is a picture of how men respond to the gift that God has given. And we're going to look this morning at the response of the Magi, and we're going to see how we can respond in like manner. And the first thing that we're going to look at is the Magi's response of, obe of obedience. And the first question I'm, I want to ask you guys is, who are these guys? You know, who are these guys called magi? And, and the first thing is, I don't want to bust your bubble, um, but they're not kings. They're not kings. And I'm glad Brett didn't do we three kings. Um, they're not kings. And we don't know if there were three of them. Sorry about that. 
And their names were not Melchior, Balsazar, and Casper. And finally, they didn't show up on Christmas. They didn't show up with the shepherds. They probably came three to six months later because in verse 11, it says that they were already in a house. Jesus' family was in a house. Um, my mom knew that, all those facts. And she used to love decorating for Christmas every year. I mean, the whole house, she would deck it out. She would even take pictures down and wrap them, you know, and put ribbons on them. She loved decorating. And one thing she wanted to be was accurate in her, in her decorating. So what she would do is she would put the nativity scene in the dining room and the wise men in the bathroom. Now, why did she do that? Because she wanted, she, she wanted to represent the bathroom, the distance from the bathroom to the dining room represented metaphorically six months. She wanted to be accurate. And she loved Christmas. One writer says this about the wise men. The Magi first appeared in history in the 7th century B.C. as a tribe within the Midian nation in eastern Mesopotamia. Many historians uh, consider them to be Semites, which if so made them, along with the Jews and the Arabs, descendants of Noah's son Shem. It may also be that like Abraham, the Magi came from the ancient city of Ur of the Chaldea. Magi became well-skilled in astronomy, science, agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult. Their training gave them religious and political influence, which continued to grow until they became the most prominent group of advisors in the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empires. Historians tell us, and listen to this, this is the most important thing. Historians tell us that no Persian ever was able to become king without mastering the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi and then being approved and crowned by them. Isn't that cool? They were, in a sense, kingmakers. They went around approving kings. And though they were called by God to travel to Israel to pronounce to the world that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And not only to the world, but especially to the Jewish world, that Jesus was their king. I, I love what Brett had in the song, it, it, and I'm glad I remembered this. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. That's what they were proclaiming to the world that Jesus had come to be our king. Well, we also learn from the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, that there were wise men in Babylon. And if you remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and this dream made him really upset. And so he called all his wise men in. And he said, "What? interpret this dream for me, right? And he said, if you don't interpret it correctly, you know, off with your head. He didn't say that exactly. He said he's going to kill them, right? And so 
the wise men, here, here's what Nebuchadnezzar did that was pretty smart. He said, not only do I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream, but I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me what I dreamt so I know that you're on the up and up, right? And so they looked at him and said, we can't do that. Nobody can do that. You know, only God can do that. We can't do that. And so Daniel gets wind of this, right? And he goes to his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they pray, and they ask God to help them to interpret this dream, and, and God gives Daniel the interpretation and the dream. And he saves the wise men of Babylon. Now, you know what? When somebody saves your life, that makes you pretty tight with them, doesn't it? So I'm pretty sure that Daniel had a very tight relationship with all the wise men of Babylon and, and probably talked about a lot about the coming king of kings. Now that may have been where they heard about Jesus. Or they could have read it, they could have read it in the Old Testament, or they could have gotten it, which I think is where they got it from, they could have gotten it from a dream from God, just as they did in verse 12. But however they found out about Jesus coming, the one thing that I want you to see in this passage is they were quick to obey God at following this star. Now can you imagine being Miss Magi, waking up on the side of Mr. Magi, when he says, I had a dream last night. And I had a dream from God. And God told me to get up and go to Israel, about 600 miles away. And, and I'm going to find his son. It's going to be a newborn babe. And I'm to worship him and give great gifts to him. And Mrs. Magi would probably say, have you lost your mind? Right? And probably some of their friends would say, are you crazy? Just think of some of the stuff they heard, saying, we're going here, 600 miles away. We're going to risk our lives to go listen to a God who's calling us to go there. Sounds like Abraham, doesn't it? These men obeyed God even though it looked odd to the rest of the world. They obeyed like Noah when he built an ark without having a cloud in the sky. They obeyed like Abraham who was called the father of nations even though he was childless. They obeyed like David who was victorious over Goliath even though he was a shrimp and Goliath was a giant. They obeyed, and their faith was proven by their obedience. Is your life characterized by obedience to God, no matter what the circumstances? You know, think of Daniel standing up to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, and, and interpreting that dream, knowing that if he did anything wrong, it could be off with his head. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up to, God, to, to Nebuchadnezzar and not bowing the knee to his idol and being thrown in the fiery furnace. 
They were obedient to God no matter what the circumstances. And the scriptures say that if we love Christ, then we will obey his commands. But you know what? It's not perfection in your life. Some of us think that God's calling us to be perfect. We can't be perfect. We are all justified sinners. We all sin every day. It's not perfection in your life, but is the direction of your life changed? Is there a desire there for new obedience? Well, the Magi did this, and it was evidence of their faith. And you might be thinking, how do you know they had faith, Mark? Well, John 6, 37 says, All that the Father give me, come to me. Did they come to Christ? They sure did. And it says, All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. They came to Christ, and they came in obedience. They also came in humility. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they're going along. They're following this star, which I think was probably the Shekinah glory of God. It wasn't a star, most likely. It was the Shekinah glory, like, like the people in the wilderness were guided by a, a, a pillar of fire at night. They were guided by a bright light. And this light guided them through the desert towards Bethlehem. But at one point, this light disappears. And so they're in Jerusalem, and they start asking directions. Uh, I was watching a show. How many of you have seen Family Feud um, with Steve Harvey? Okay. One of the topics was how long before a man will ask directions when he's lost? What's the number one answer? The number one answer. Anybody know? Never? <laughs> no, it wasn't never. It was one hour. One hour. I remember in Canada last year, I drove for about an hour arguing with the GPS, you know? And the GPS was wrong. Um, but here are these guys show up to Jerusalem and they start asking right away. And the way that it's worded is they were asking everybody, where is Jesus? Where is the one who is born? You know, where is he? Where is he? They, they were... They were humble. Notice this. They didn't come to town saying, we dreamed, God gave us a dream and told us where the child of God would be born. Why don't you guys know that? You're Jews. You have the Bible. You're the people of God and you don't even know? Notice they didn't say that. They were humble. They weren't arrogant. They didn't come across that way. They, they knew, in a sense, they knew that they were called by grace. They, they weren't called because they were great astronomers or great theologians or wise men. <laughs> they were called because of God's grace. And they were called to worship the baby Jesus because he was their king. You know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of the humility of another man. 
James, um, William Carey, he was a, a missionary to India in the 1700s. And he wrote a letter home to his son on his 70th birthday. And, and before I read that letter, I want to, to read to you what he did in India. Carey, who went to India in 1793, is often called the father of modern missions. His vast labors for Christ included the translation of parts or the whole Bible into more than 40 languages and dialects. He was the originator of the well-known missionary slogan, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Now listen, after, do, after he did all that his whole life, he writes this letter home to his son on his 70th birthday and he says this, I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness, though on review of my life I found much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. Forty translations of the Bible, I mean 40 different languages? I have not promoted his cause nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all of this, I am spared till now and am still retained in his work. And I trust I am received into divine favor through him. Wow. Talk about humility. How could... How can he write something like that in a letter? kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul saying, I am the chief of sinners. Was he the chief of sinners? I don't think so. I think he saw his sin because he was a mature Christian. And I think Carrie saw his sin because he was a mature Christian. He knew that all his accomplishments were nothing when compared to the righteous record that Christ gave him. Carey could only boast in the righteousness of Christ, and that's all that the Magi could do. And that's what they were there to do, worship Christ and Christ alone. You know, there's a catchy saying that's been going around for years, wise men still seek him. Guess what? I don't think so. Romans 3 says there are none who seek for God. None who are unregenerate. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, 
Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what they were doing. They were boasting in the Lord and the Lord alone. And that produces humility. But look at this passage. Look at verses 3 through 8. Now we're going to see the opposite of humility. We're going to see somebody who is arrogant and who has worldly wisdom. Look at verses 3 through 8, and we'll look at Herod. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him liar right oh my word what a politician right he didn't want to worship christ he wanted to destroy him herod was a wicked man herod was a one who ruled this was herod the great who ruled from 37 bc to 4 bc he was a ruthless ruler who would keep his power in any way possible. In fact, he killed three of his sons to keep his throne. And notice in verse 3 it says that Jerusalem was troubled. <laughs> they weren't troubled because of the Magi. They were troubled because of Herod and how Herod would react to the Magi because they knew when Herod got paranoid, people died. People died. But you know, Herod was not the only one who hated Jesus. Every one of us, before we were Christians, hated Christ. We didn't want him to rule over us. We wanted to rule ourselves. We wanted to rule ourselves. And, and in fact, we would have done anything back then to yank Jesus off his throne. We were just like Herod. But God, in Ephesians 2, was merciful to us and regenerated our heart. You know, it's just like Saul on the road to Damascus wanting to persecute the church and God gets a hold of him and changes him to Paul where the greatest persecutor of the church becomes the greatest preacher. We, like the Apostle Paul, have been shown great mercy. We've been given the greatest Christmas gift of all and which gives us not only humility of saying, why me, God, but also a desire to worship the king of kings. Look at verses 9 through 11. And after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them. So the star showed up again, the light showed up again. 
until it came and stood over the place where, Christ, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. You know, the, the, the Magi had traveled hundreds of miles. Um, they had risked everything. You know, they've risked everything They're at the expense of their, themselves, their families, and even their own reputation. And their focus was not on themselves, but their focus was on Christ. Was on Christ. And, and think about this. I, I can't imagine to, to have the opportunity to see I mean, they were some of the few that saw Jesus as a child, as a baby. Pretty cool. Seeing the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of God's Son, and being able to witness that. I hope one day in heaven there's a video that we get to watch, you know, to see it again. You never know. To see the glory of God when he first comes to earth, right? And can you imagine them sitting there thinking, here's this baby who is so dependent upon its mother for milk and upon its father for protection, which he does later on to go to Egypt, right? Here's this baby that's, you know, dependent. But then he's independent. He's the creator of the universe, I mean, can you imagine what that was like for them to bow before the King of Kings? And then as part of their worship, they give to the king generously. And I, and I know they, they didn't give out of their wealth. They gave according to their wealth. They gave gold, which is gold is to be given to kings and frankincense. And myrrh. And you know, many times in the Old Testament, many times in the Old Testament, the people of God would bring sickly lambs and sheep to give to God as a sacrifice, acting as if God didn't see what they were doing. And in Malachi, listen to what it says in Malachi, what God thought about that. Malachi 1, verse 6 says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Acting like they didn't understand. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar but you say how have we defiled you in that you say the table of the lord is to be despised but when you present the blind for sacrifice is that not evil and when you present the lame and the sick is it not evil why not offer it to your governor would he be pleased with you 
Or would he receive you kindly? The Magi knew that their giving wasn't to a governor. It wasn't to a president. But it was to their king, who not only sees their actions, but reads their hearts. And they were doing this out of love for him. Out of love for him. And this is the only response that pleases God. I heard um, on the radio a couple weeks ago, a woman called in and they were talking about traditions, family traditions during Christmas. And this lady called in and she said, our tradition is this. I take my kids, I want to teach them how to give generously at Christmas time. I don't want them to think about everything I'm going to get. I want them to give. So she takes them to the mall or to any kind of store, and she looks around for somebody that looks like they're needy, and she walks up to them and gives them a hundred bucks out of the blue. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool Christmas tradition. But then I thought about it, and I said, wait a minute. Um, this might be a wonderful tradition unless it's done for the wrong reason. What is the wrong reason? Well, when it's practiced without a love for Christ. I mean, you could do that for what the thanks you're going to get from the poor person. You could do it for the acclamations that everybody's going to say, oh, what a great idea. You know, I had to do that at Christmas. I had to put it on Pinterest, you know? And so everybody hears about it, right? Instead of doing it out of love for Christ. One writer says this about love. He says, love for God then is the only acceptable motive for obedience to him. This love may express itself in a reverence for him and a desire to please him, but those expressions must spring from love. Without the motive of love, my apparent obedience may be essentially self-serving. Negatively, I may fear God will punish me or at least withhold his blessings from me because of some disobedience. I may abstain from a particular sinful action out of fear that I will be found out or because I don't want to feel guilty afterwards. Positively, I may be seeking to earn God's blessing through some pious action. I may conform to a certain standard of the culture that I live in, the Christian culture that I live in. All of these motives, both negative and positive, may result in an outward form of obedience, but it's not obedience from our hearts. Our behavior may appear out, outstanding to other people, but not be acceptable to God, because it does not spring from a motive of love to Him. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground, and they worshipped him. The Magi had joy in seeing the star. They had joy in their humble obedience to God. They had joy in giving to the king of kings. And not only did they have joy, I believe, then, I believe they had joy all the way home. 
They had joy all the way home. In closing, when I was younger, used to play football a lot when we were kids in the, in the neighborhood. And a lot of times we would have a penalty during when we were playing and we would get an, a do-over. You know, a do-over. And the best thing about do-overs is, same as mulligan in golf, is usually you do a lot better with a do-over. Well, think about this. By God's grace, he has regenerated our hearts. He has given us a new heart. And we are given the ultimate do-over in life. Just like Scrooge, who woke up filled with joy on Christmas Day. He was so excited to serve and give generously because of his second chance. We have been given the greatest gift of all. And the question is, how will you respond to that gift? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this season in which we celebrate the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, which started on Christmas and, and was consummated in the resurrection. Lord, we just thank you for the grace that we have been given and help us to respond like the Magi in faithful obedience and love. Lord, we just praise you for your mercy and your grace which abound to us and is new every morning. We praise you, Lord, for this time together and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.